0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is our final book club episode of the year. I'm thrilled to be joined again by Shakespeare scholar and the author of The Great White Bard, Farah Kareem Cooper she and I are going to break down William Shakespeare's perhaps most famous play ever, Romeo and Juliet. You all already know the story of star-crossed lovers who find each other amidst an intense family feud. It's been adapted into many films, which we talk about today. We also ask questions about which characters are the best, why this play is taught in schools still to this day, and... I get a little spicy with some of my most hot Shakespeare takes. There are spoilers on this episode in case you're not familiar with Romeo and Juliet. Make sure to listen to the end of this episode to find out what our January 2024 book club pick will be. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love this show and you want inside access to it, go and join the Stacks Pack. That's our members-only group for book lovers that you can access at patreon.com slash the Stacks. When you join, you get perks like our Discord channel, our monthly virtual book club meetups, bonus episodes. Plus, if you join right now, you're going to get access to the Stacks reading tracker and be able to vote in our annual awards, the Stackies, starting in January. Plus, by joining the Stacks Pack, you get to support this podcast. So if you like what you hear and you appreciate the work that I do and the work that my teammates do, please, please, please head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join us. I'd like to take this time to give a shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Despina Karas, Edera, Kumkum Parik Malik, Melissa R. Green, and Bianca Louie. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. I could not do it without you. All right. Now it is time for the book club conversation on William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet with author and scholar Farrah Kareem Cooper. All right, everybody. It's finally time to do Shakespeare on the Stacks podcast. I am joined again by the wonderful Farrah Kareem Cooper, the author of The Great White Bard. We're discussing Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. We will be spoiling, but also you guys know what happens. But just in case you don't, if you've never read the book and you have no idea what this is, let me give you the quick synopsis, which is basically Romeo and Juliet, two teenagers fall in love, their families hate each other, drama ensues. So that's the synopsis. Sarah, um, first of all, hi, how are you? I'm really
1: good. How are you doing? It's great to be back.
0: I'm good. I'm so glad you're back. Um, okay. We always start here, which I think this will be kind of a loaded question for you since I know you know and love this play. What did you think? What do you think of Romeo and Juliet?
1: Wow. Yeah, that's a big question. What do I think of Romeo and Juliet? (laughs) Well, um, it was my gateway drug uh, to Shakespeare, as it is for most people. Um, I think I talk about this in my book where I talk about how I met Shakespeare, and it was in my freshman English class. Um, But it wasn't through the text. It was through the film version, which may Mm -hmm. have been some sort of prophecy about my future investment performance of Shakespeare as opposed to just Mm. reading Shakespeare. Um, But I remember watching the Zeffirelli uh, film, which I think was made in the late sixties. And it it was like stunning for me. Um, (sighs) And uh, there's been a lot of bad Romeo and Juliet films. Uh, but that was a kind of key marker for me, and then um, the Baz Luhrmann one was a key marker for me. But I
0: think the okay, good. I was worried you were going to say that was a bad one, and I was oh, like, oh no, we can't. I loved it. Okay, good, because I love it.
1: Yeah, we we can geek out on that one <laughs> yeah. at some point in yes, this conversation. Yes, we will.
0: I have a whole yeah. section on the movies. Okay, let me give you my quick overview of the play. I love the play. It was not my first Shakespeare. My first Shakespeare was *Midsummer's Night Dream* in elementary school. I pa- played. Whoa. Peas Blossom or something, one of the little fairies, maybe Mustard Seed. I don't know, one of those little ones. But in high school, we did read Romeo and Juliet. But in middle school, the movie came out for me. So I was familiar with the story. Um, I love the play. I think it's one of his best. Um, and we can talk about that too, because I, I want to know what you think about why it's one of the most popular ones. Um, but every time I read it, I like it more. And I'm My previous Mm. reading informs it for me. So like I read it, I think in 2018, most recently before this week. And I remember thinking like the adults in this play are a problem. And then when I read it this time, (laughs) I was like had that in the back of my head. And every single thing the Friar Lawrence says was like pissing me off. You know, it's like each time I Mm. read it. I'm more I'm I'm like oh I remember thinking this or like the last time I read it I remember thinking about how good Juliet's speeches were and then this time when I was reading it I was thinking about how her speech how she almost like loses speech by the end of it like I was cuz I was mm. thinking so much about how good her text is and like after everything that happens like by the end it's like she kind of disappears before she dies and so those like little Like, each time I read, I feel like it gets richer for me. But I do want to start with why you wanted to read this one on the show. Because I sent over a list, I think, of like seven or eight. And this is the one you picked. And so I'm curious why this play for this moment.
1: Well, I think it's, you know, I think I want people to think about the play a bit differently, I guess, Mm. as a Shakespeare scholar, but also as someone who has uh, a teenage daughter. <laughs> oh. um, yeah, because I think I'm always very curious, and I'd love to know what you think about this, as to why this play is the one that we teach freshman English. We teach 14, 15-year-olds this play, the almost the exact same age of Romeo and Juliet. Right. And it ends in a double suicide of two right. teenagers. Right. And so we, I think for years that has been sensationalized and glorified and romanticized. And it's not new to romanticize tragic endings to lovers because, you know, that that's something that people have done for centuries. But we do we do it in a way that's almost pathological, (laughs) you know, (laughs) So I'm just, I think I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk about and flesh out what the play really is while also holding on to all the things that we love about it, because I do love this play. The poetry is sublime, even if some of it is quite racialized, but it is sublime poetry and it is incredible the moment when Romeo and Juliet lay eyes on each other how they speak to each other the way that's depicted in my two favorite
0: films is yeah
1: I haven't seen a production that's been able to surpass that
0: I agree um, that Holy Palmer's kiss scene is just like reading it seeing it every time I get it like makes you feel thing. I don't think you can read it and not with the verse, the way the verse is and the way that it's like a yeah. sonnet broken up and the rhythm, it's just so there. Even if you don't know anything about Shakespeare, if you read it out loud and you hear it out loud, it's just like, oh, whoa. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah. It's also incredibly intimate. I, mm-hmm. I wrote a book um, a few years back about the hand on the Shakespearean mm. stage. And um I had a whole chapter on touch and I had done lots of research on like the palm of the hand. Mm. And for women in the time the palm of the hand was seen as the most in, one of the most intimate parts of the body. So, you know, like how you t- touch a woman at court, you know, you have to kiss the back of her hand. You cannot mm. be kissing and touching the palm of her hand. And the fact that they hold each other's hands palm to palm, suggests an intimacy that we kind of lose in the modern world.
0: Yeah. okay, so why do you think this is the one we teach? Mm. I've been thinking about it a lot. like I, I guess I can go I'll go first and tell you a little bit of what I think okay. I think part of it is because the characters are the age of the students. and I feel like, that feels like an easy entry point. You know, the language is challenging for a lot of young people and adults. Um, And so if you're like, great, these, most of the people in this play, Benvolio, Mercutio, Tybalt, Paris-ish, they're all like younger people. (laughs) Um, And so I think that that's like an easy entry point. I think that it's because there are good movies too. I think that's why, like, teachers are able to be like look you can see this and like feel it in a way that's exciting and I think that I don't I don't know that this is on purpose but I do think that the sex in this play there's so much like body language so much sex so many puns I think that that maybe like years ago when this became curriculum was maybe something that they talked about more in school in a way or like kind of like you know, like the creepy teacher who like says inappropriate things. It kind of has that vibe, you know? So I feel like it like got into curriculum when like old white guys were in charge and now it's sort of like, hmm. So I think that that's all part of it. But I do have questions about like, <laughs> about the suicide, obviously, and like why that's it. And I also feel like of the ones, I think we talked about this last time, like I think that Macbeth is a much easy, like a much better read. Like I think there are plays that are better read. So much of this play especially the first half is wordplay so much. Like, I mean the first scene with the like two guys in the street, it's that whole like courier, courier, whatever. Like there's like four lines of just wordplay. And like so much of uh, Mercutio is wordplay with Romeo and Romeo rhymes so much. And I don't know that that translates as well off the page. So I don't know. But so why do you think? So, I
1: mean, I think a lot of it is to do with what you just said about, you know, it's about identification, you know, how to get young people interested in Shakespeare is show them the play that's about young people, that's about them. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's full of like the turbulence of teenage hormones and the sort of irrationality of adolescence and the kind of impulsive things that you do for for your heart, for passion. You don't really think things through Mm -hmm. when you're 14 necessarily. Um, And so that's something that you can identify with. I mean, I know a lot of productions um, lately, particularly in England, have focused on the kind of um, street violence and knife crime Mm. and that kind of thing as a a way of talking about current problems in society that teenagers are facing. So that's one, that's probably one way. It's a great sort of... um, site for exploring their own worlds, like if it's handled really, really well. Mm. Um, I think the way I was taught it, even though we saw this great film, I was taught it in a way that was sort of, ooh, look at this amazing romantic world. And I, yeah. and I, I was like, wow, looking back, it wasn't so romantic at the end. No. And actually, as you say, the adults are are pretty messed up.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I think if I was teaching this play now as an adult and and all that I know, I think in addition to what you're saying about like the sort of violence, I think I would teach it as like a cautionary tale that like adults actually don't know everything and that you have to question in these moments, because I think like Friar Lawrence is such a letdown at every turn. Um, I'm very <laughs> anti Friar Lawrence. I have got like, I, I, I'm i so out on him. I think he's an idiot. Like, I think he knows nothing. <laughs> I, I think he, I think there's a version of this where Friar Lawrence could be, could be some form of like a cult leader. Like there's the scene mm. where he's talking to Romeo after Romeo's banished. And he's like, be happy, be happy. Like a, like a fault, toxic positivity guy. He's Like Girl, I've been working on my herbs. I've got this potion. It totally works. This is fine. I'm going to send a letter. Like I've got this. And then at the very end, when, when the, Uh, When the prince is like, what happened? And he's like, well, John messed this up. And the nurse knew about this. Like, I got to go. And he's like, Juliet, Juliet, I'll make you a nun. It's fine. Like, he's such a scammer to me. So I hate him. But I do think that they're like, I think that the nurse lets Juliet down. I think her parents let her down. I think the fact that Romeo's parents aren't around at all. Like, I think there's a conversation in this play about how even though the children make bad decisions, the adults are making consistently bad decisions over and over and over again. And I think that that's something that I would want to teach if I was teaching this play now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's something about the dysfunctionality of a society that that starts with punishment, right? Mm-hmm. That punishment is like, that seems to be the mode. Everything's punitive, you know? Yep. When the prince comes out and says, stop the street fighting, the next person that does, this will be the consequence, you know? And then Romeo's banished. And so there, there is, I feel for the friar a bit because I think the friar's trying to do the other thing and try to move them away from the punitive and, and, and actually think of solutions. And actually, we could do it this way. Uh, it fails miserably, yeah. but... <laughs> <laughs> I think I have, I'm, I'm
0: a little bit more team fryer than you are. Okay. Well, I'm definitely, you're, if you're at all team fryer, you're more team fryer than me. I am like, I think fryer is bottom, bottom of the barrel to me. Um, I do. I, yeah. I do think there's a definitely like a punitive element. I, and I think what is good about this play though, part of the problem now is that everyone knows it and everyone's seen it is that if you don't know what's coming, the ending is extremely shocking and upsetting. Right, yeah. like because the whole lead, the whole first half of the play, like most of Shakespeare's or like some of Shakespeare's tragedies, is sort of a jovial play. There's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. There's a party. They meet. They kiss. They go, and then mm-hmm. you know, Act Three, where everyone, where, where Mercutio and Tybalt are killed, and that's sort of the switch. But if you really don't know yeah. what's happening, there's still a world where like you can believe that something else is possible. And I also yes. I think that that's a really interesting thing to teach if, if, if the teacher has a classroom of students who really don't know it. And like, you really are reading the text and, and going with, going on the journey that Shakespeare set up. I think so often productions now are done and if the assumption is that everybody knows it and so they're playing to the end from the beginning like so many productions lose the fun and the joy of the first part and like the bromance between Mercutio and Mm -hmm. Romeo like as I was reading it I totally forgot that that's even like in the text because I think so much of like Mercutio is being he's going to be dead soon that I forget Mm. so much of like the levity of that character and when he comes after romeo goes and consummates or no after romeo meets juliet and he's like oh are you still rhyming like oh you're still just mr hat like <laughs> this like that playfulness i love and and i and i think that that's also a potentially great thing that you can teach in like as far as like story structure and as as like what the theater can do you know um i want to ask you a little bit about the language and the verse How do you think about iambic pentameter? How do you suggest that other people think about it? Like, I know some people read for the iambic pentameter. Some people read to the punctuation. You know, I I know people who say that they observe the verse and then I see the production and I'm like, that's not the verse. So I'm curious how much, how important that is to you.
1: So it feels that in this play, the poetry, the pentameter is important, you know, to observe if you are cutting the script, you know, you can't perform the whole thing because some of it's quite repetitive, particularly Friar's kind of explanation at the end. Um, It feels like if you're cutting the script as a director, you're going to have to really think about scansion, you know, do Mm -hmm. these lines scan? And so it's a kind of difficult task. Um, So I think it does matter in this play. There are other plays where it matters less, but this is a play that uses the vehicle of poetry in order to communicate love and desire. Mm. Um, And it was a chief vehicle for the expressions of love in that time period. Um, and so Shakespeare is being very conventional, but unconventional there. So he's being conventional in that he's he's using this language as a way of saying there are ways to tell someone you love. And actually, sometimes you can't even use the most beautiful language to describe what's in your heart. And, and then he's being unconventional in that he's writing a play and he's got sonnets being spontaneously composed by teenage lovers. I mean, it's extraordinary. So in some ways, the play is about poetry. So I do think that the poetry matters. Um, But of course, you approach it with young people often with the story first, because that's what's going to grip them. And then you come in with the poetry.
0: Yeah, I I think I I told you that I was an actress and I did a lot of Shakespeare um, in college. And I studied with Louis Sheeter, who did classical Shakespeare in New York. And then also uh, one of the productions we did was directed by uh, Tim Carroll, who I'm Oh, I know know. Tim very well. And Tim is very intense about iambic pentameter aggressively. And so was Louie. And so when I was in college, I, I encountered this play first in school, read it, just tried to figure out the words but in reading it with the pen, with the iambic pentameter and scanning the lines and doing it I think the play's better like I do think that you can find like the antithesis and you can really find the arguments within the rhythm in a way that helps make sense of like exactly what, what especially with Juliet with what she's grappling with like in the Gallop of Pace speech and in the mm. banish speech like she's really grappling and in the speech before she takes the poison she's really grappling and like convincing herself of something or figuring something out. And I think when you shy away from reading the lines as iambic pentameter and finding the rhythm, I think it hurts the story. Like, I think it takes away from the story itself. But I know so many teachers and people are, like, scared to use it. They think that it feels rote or, like, you know, ba da 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 It's like, no, hmm. you can still do that without doing that and I think like this is at least for me and I'm curious to hear what you think because you again have that theater and English background is like I think that people in the theater are so connected to the performance of it and people in the classroom are so connected to the language of it that there's mm-hmm. like a disconnect and I think I, I think that that's part of like the problem that we have with Shakespeare with young people is like depending on where you get it first you might not ever get it again. And so if that way doesn't click for you, you might not like it, you know? I don't I don't know if that makes sense, but...
1: Yeah, it does. I think in the classroom, you don't, as I was saying, you don't have to start with the poetry because that is the scary part because yeah. the, these words feel really archaic. And, and the way Shakespeare puts these words together is hard. But when you're able to work with students, and I've seen this before because I used to teach high school, when you work with students and you say, This is what it means, and then that light bulb goes on in their face and they're like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Yes, it is amazing yeah. that he this is the sentiment he means. And it's because they can identify that meaning, but mm-hmm. the fact that those words point to that meaning is, is is gives the students a sense of confidence that they understand that. It's a mm. it's an it's an accomplishment, it's an achievement. Um, as much as it is a kind of revelation for them. So I think that you can go and it doesn't have to be, let's just look at language. It could be, here's the story. Right. How many of you have felt this way? You know, And mm. are, are you excited to feel this way? Oh, but look what can happen. So you just go through the story, you show them a film and then sit down and do stuff with the language. And there are lots of activities that you can do with the language that actually are sometimes a rehearsal room activities. Yeah. The education department where I work at Shakespeare's Globe, a lot of our education practice is is straight from the rehearsal room, you know, using techniques from, from the rehearsal room so that students get are able to get their mouths around the words and then their minds
0: around the meaning. Yeah. I want to go into the play. I want to talk about the ages of these children. <laughs> is this book actually, perhaps, I know we can't actually get to what Shakespeare was thinking, but let's try. Do we think that this book is actually supposed to be read as romantic? Or do we think that this is some sort of criticism on young marriage or a cautionary tale against young people or old people or older people or whatever? Because Juliet's super duper young. And I know that people got married super duper young, but even in the book, there's some moments where it sounds like she's young, even younger than maybe the norm at the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's kind of a myth that in Elizabethan England, people got married when they were teenagers. Uh, Sometimes, you know, women in aristocratic households were betrothed early on to somebody so Mm. that, you know, they can keep the classes sort of aligned. But, um, you know, a lot of people, the average age was in the 20s. You know, it was like either 20, okay. 25, even 27. So, um, so, yeah, that is kind of a myth. And so okay. I, I don't think Shakespeare's necessarily making a kind of comment on his own moment. But I think what's really interesting is that it is a story that people had talked about, right? It's a mm-hmm. his source text is Arthur Brooks' um, 1563 sort of novella version of Romeo and Juliet. Um, and then there's this kind of ancient story from um, Verona of of this you know Juliet this couple, um, and so he's drawing on sources and and the story is um, it's timeless. Like people loved mm. that story, so he's finding a new expression for quite a familiar story. And I think the age thing, I think there is you you hear Capulet at one point comment that. Well, she's a bit young, Paris. I don't know if she's ready for Mm -hmm. this. You know, he does kind of comment in that way. But the anxiety of a patriarch like Capulet, who's only got one child and it's a daughter in a patrilineal society, which means that your your kid, whichever kid you have, will inherit your property and it should go go through the male line. So whoever she marries, the property will belong to the man. Because it's patrilineal. It won't be in her name. And so he's very, very concerned about who she ends up with. And I think that that is what kind of really provokes him to enable her to be betrothed so early.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about love. Love. (laughs) <laughs> Romeo hmm. Romeo is a fuckboy. <laughs> hey, I I claim this for him. It is true. Yes. There is so much textual evidence that that is who he is. From his friends, from the Friar. Even yeah. wasn't there's like a part where the Friar's like you love by rote. He's like <laughs> you're so basic. What that's the Friar's best part for me when he's clowning on Romeo. But um was love different then? <laughs> Like, because like Paris at the very end when he's in the tomb, he's like, oh, my my beloved Juliet. And I'm like, I know you're sad, but you guys didn't even talk except for like twice in the entire play. Like You don't know each other. And Romeo loves Rosalind. Then he loves Juliet after 35 seconds. And then she loves him. And and I'm just like, what was the deal with love? So, first of all, I love the idea. So.
1: Romeo is like an archetypal pe- Petrarchan lover, right? So this yes. person who worships, uses... That's a
0: fancier way of saying fuckboy. Yeah, fuck <laughs> exactly.
1: Petrarchan <laughs> lover, a.k.a. fuckboy, basically. Yeah, yeah. so he, he sort of over-romanticizes love, and he becomes mm-hmm. obsessed with love itself as opposed to the person who he loves. And you see examples of that in Shakespeare. Um, and what's so interesting is that Juliet kind of says, okay, I love the poetry, but... When are right. you going to get married to me? Right? So what are we going to yes. do about this? And I love that she brings some agency and action um, to the story. Um, and, th- you know, I think that's what I love about her the most. So I think love was, depending on, it, particularly if you're thinking about aristocratic families, love didn't really have a place when it came to marriage. Right. Uh, but love, as Shakespeare sort of seems to suggest in many of his plays, is, uh, is not necessarily married to reason, um, mm. or to social convention. Um, and so human expression, human desire, human passion can escape and we're not always in control of it. And there was huge, uh, sort of movement, particularly in the Reformation period to be in control or to at least regulate your emotions, right? Um, and if you can't do that, then somehow you've you've lost your sense of reason, and then that will lead to sin, and all kinds of bad things will happen. Um, and this overregulation of the self is something I think Shakespeare seems to question in a lot of his plays. You can't control all the time how you're going to feel or how you're going to express yourself, and so if you do bottle things up, it will jump out in a way that feels unnatural. So. Um, He's looking at human compulsion in a way that I think um, a lot of his contemporaries weren't because it was Mm. you see a lot of texts at that time talking about love melancholy and how silly it makes you and how uncontrol of your senses you are. And you need Mm. to control your senses. You need to control your bodily desires. Um, Otherwise, you're not a good citizen, uh, let alone a good subject of God's. So, So I think he's sort of bashing against that. Uh, particularly with this story, love is a real thing. It is a real thing for them as much as it is for us, and you see that in in, in poetry, not just Shakespeare's um, right. essays written about love, but the expectations from society about love and about marriage could be really oppressive. And I think this play is sort of dealing with that tension,
0: right? Like the stakes are feel a lot higher. Like being betrothed to Paris feels a lot higher. Than like the stakes, if your parents now are like, we would like you to get married to this person. Like yes. feels like there's more options. Yeah. Um I think also like the way that Shakespeare uses language in all of his plays, and like the way that he will change, you know, the speed of like how many words are in a line or like versus like longer lines or like how much lines are shared and like that quipping nature and all of that. I have always been taught to like read that as indicative of some change, right? In the text. So like, for example, the scene, the Holy Palmer scene, that there's clearly a connection between them because they're sharing so much of this sonnet, right? Back and Mm -hmm. forth, back and forth. And that shows that there's this connection. Um, And so I think what's interesting in this play is that that moment they're on the same page, but throughout a lot of the play, it doesn't feel like Romeo and Juliet are on the same page. They're always sort of, like, she's asking him, how did you get in here? What are you going to do if my my family finds you? And he's like, love, there's more peril in your eyes than your family. And she's like, no, they're literally going to kill you. And he's like, but I love you. <laughs> and then, like, later at the postcoital scene where it's like, it's the nightingale. No, it's the lark. Like, there's always sort of this disconnect between them, which I think is really interesting. And maybe that they're, like, trying to get back mm-hmm. to that first moment of like really being on the same page and like the the palmer's kiss and the sharing of the lines and i think it comes in and out but i do find it interesting that so much of their relationship that we see is them being on a different page or like having these like little arguments and fights and i don't know what it says but it does when you really read it and you take away the like idea of Romeo and Juliet, but you really read what's on the page, there is a conflict between them throughout. And like, and that carries over with they're not in the same place when he's banished and she's here. And, and, you know, I don't, I, there's just something about that tension that I find really cool about this book, like the, yeah. the idea of it versus of what's actually there.
1: I really love that too. I think what's Um, fascinating about it is the play is structured on this tension between binaries. So whether, Mm -hmm. what I remember I wrote an essay a long time ago about um, the sort of up and down language, the language of ascension and the language of dissension. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of uh, sort of vertical language in this play. Mm. Um, So you've got, Juliet up on her balcony and Romeo down under the shadows. She's the sun and he's, you know, he's the opposite. And so you constantly get this sort of uh, tension between them. And then you've got the sort of racialized uh, black and white binary that's operating in the play. So night and day. And, you know, she's a, uh, I think, a swan among crows, you know, describing Mm -hmm. her beauty. So there's opposites and uh, the sort of... um, you get a sense of, I, I like to use the word tension because it has a sort of tangible um, yeah. sensation to it. And that if you're pulling a rope and someone's pulling the other side, there's a real tension there and you, it feels like there's things at stake. And I feel like the play is structured on that on that tension. Um, and, and of course, the whole basis of the story is this feud between the Montagues right. and the Capulets. Um, and so I think that's a really productive thing. And I think that's something that Shakespeare is doing very, very deliberately. Um, and of course, because she, she's, she's not a Rosaline, you know, the person he mm-hmm. was in love with before. You know, she's Juliet. She's an embodied person, not some right. ghosty mistress of a sonnet, right, right, right. you know? <laughs> and so you get that tension too, because he's like, wait a minute, sonnet mistress, you're just supposed to be worshipped and, and, and adore that. Uh, and she's no, I, I'm earthy. I'm human. I'm made of clay and flesh. And what are you going to do with me? What are you going to do with my body? You know. Right. Um, so I think that tension in in the play is just absolutely delicious. It's what it's what gives the play it's it's energy.
0: Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about race. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Okay, we're back. We got to talk about race because you wrote, you wrote the book on it. <laughs> I don't think that I ever would have thought of this play as being a racialized play. And I think probably most people would have the same, you know, feeling about it. If you were like, Oh, I wrote this book about Shakespeare and race. They'd be like, right. Othello, uh, Aaron, the Moor." maybe we get some Anthony and Cleopatra. Maybe we get some Shylock, but you have a whole chapter, um, or a whole section on Romeo and Juliet. And I'm wondering sort of like, what are we missing on this one when it comes to race?
1: People have wondered why I would include Romeo and Juliet in this, in this book. And I think it's because I didn't approach race as a topic, but rather, mm-hmm. I think I may have said this to you before, that I think of race as um, a, a context in which Shakespeare's operating, right? There, mm-hmm. He's operating in a time of racial formation. We know that there were Black people and people of color living in England during the time Shakespeare was writing his plays. England was becoming a global, uh, you know, aspiring to becoming a global empire and eventually does 150 years later. Um, and so there's all of this travel and exchange. Um, and so that creeps into the language of the time, um, mm. whether it's through uh, racialized binaries like between black and white. Now, a lot of people say, oh, but those are just metaphors. They are metaphors. But, we, but studies have been done that show that metaphors related to color actually can impact upon the way in which we think about people. Mm. Um, and we think about racial difference, and race had multiple meanings in that time period. It was associated with kinship, with stock, with lineage, with descent, and so this these are concerns that the Capulets have, and so do the Montagues. You know, when Tybalt sees Romeo at the Mon- at the Capulet ball, he says, "Oh, he's not of our stock,"
0: mm-hmm. so
1: it it suggests that there's a sort of blood difference between them. And so, you know, in my book, I don't say this is an interracial relationship in, in conventional terms, in the way that we understand it. But in terms of Renaissance ideas about who should who belongs with whom, it is interracial, and it's just a kind of invitation to think about it in that in that sense. But then you've also got in the imagery, you've got language like uh, praising Juliet to emphasize her whiteness, uh, mm-hmm. using blackness as a foil so that whiteness can shine even brighter. Right. Right. She's a pearl in an Ethiop's ear as she stands in, 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 in against the dark night. Um, now, wh- what is an Ethiopian doing, ref- being referenced right. in this play? So if we pretend that that isn't there, then we can say this play has nothing to do with race, but we can't pretend that's not there. And, and Shakespeare uses the term Ethiop in several of his other plays, mostly in the comedies, as a form of anti-Black racism. So what is it doing there? You know, when, when I researched that line, I was thinking. I, I thought, well, let me look at paintings, and of course, there are a lot of paintings from that time and that and after that that show a white woman with a a, a black child or a black servant child that often has a pearl in his ear.
0: Mm. So this
1: is some sort of trope uh, about mm. ownership, about the the beauty of whiteness, uh, the way whiteness can shine against blackness, um, and that. Is racialized. And what's really interesting is that when you think about the methodology I use, which is performance studies, and what performance studies does is it, it uses the actor testimonial as a, a body of evidence about the meaning of a play. And two biracial actors who perform that part of Romeo and Juliet at the Globe in conversations with me that have been documented talked about the way in which that language made their bodies feel diminished.
0: Mm. And so
1: it was, whether Shakespeare intended it to be racialized or somebody who reviews my book doesn't agree it's racialized, right. two black actors said, this is racialized and it's racializing me. So when, you know, it, you know she found it really difficult to talk about um, or to use the lines about uh, how whiteness is, is actually being elevated in relation to Juliet. Um, because it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't reflective of her own beauty as a biracial woman. So I think, I think that there are lots of ways in which we can think about this play. And, and when I say we can think about it through the lens of race, it's not to say that's the only lens through which to see the play, but we just need to stop ignoring it. We need to stop ignoring race. So my Mm -hmm. point in, in emphasizing this play is that race is in there. It's a context. Shakespeare's thinking about it. It may not be about race, but there are racial images. And if you're teaching this play like we do to a class full of diverse students and they come across images that diminish their bodies and we don't acknowledge that, then I think we're trying to treat Shakespeare as some sort of benign genius. And that's kind of what I'm against anyway.
0: Right. I think it's also really interesting because, you know, one of the most famous adaptations of Romeo and Juliet is West Side Story. Mm. And they really play on the racial difference, though they sort of go the opposite way and make Juliet less white by making Mm. her Puerto Rican or whatever. I mean, that's not really the right phrasing of how race works, but you know what I'm saying? And they keep Romeo as white. And I think that that's really interesting because so many of the versions that I've seen that have had interracial Romeo and Juliet have Mm. had Juliet as the person of color. And Mm. I wonder if that is influenced by West side story or if that, I wonder why I I also, I part of me thinks that maybe it's because Capulet is so angry. So it's easier to cast a person of color as an angry father because that (laughs) plays into those stereotypes. Do you know what I mean though? Like it's like, Sure, having totally. an angry black dad scream at his daughter and call her names is easier than having an angry white dad do it. I mean, even in the Claire Danes mm. one, the dad is like, he at least looks like Sicilian or something, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't yeah. look pure white like we're told that Juliet is. So I think that that's like, I i, I'm, I love the Capulets. Uh, they mm. are my favorite characters in the play. All three of them. Juliet, Lady, Lady. Mm. And dad, Capulet, I just, I love those scenes. I love the scene where he flies off the handle and he like, because it's a scene about grief. They're all grieving. And he's Mm. like, he's like, no, we're not going to do it. Actually, fuck it. We're going to do it tomorrow. (laughs) Like everybody get here. You're going to get married. I just, uh, I love it. And I love Lady Capulet. I love that she's like trying to balance these two things. And she's like, look, girl. She always calls her girl. She's like, look, girl, figure it out. (laughs) And like the scene starts with them. Um, I know I'm I'm, like going on a tangent, but when the scene starts and everyone's like, Juliet, why are you still crying? (laughs) And then I was like, maybe Juliet's a cancer. And then I went back because Lamas Day is August 1st and she's born like a fortnight and a few days before that. So she is a cancer. So she's emotional. And so I'm like, this makes sense that she probably always cries about everything and her family's like so annoyed with her and they come in and they're like, what girl, why are you crying still? And she's like, my cousin died. And they're like, get over it. Like, stop crying. And then the dad comes in. He's like, why are you crying? I I just love the dynamic of that family. And like, I love, I feel like if you're an actor and you get to play Capulet, that's probably such a fun role because he goes from being like, super chill with Tibble being like, don't worry about Romeo. It's fine to being like, you're the worst <laughs> yeah. daughter in the world. And like, it's just such a swing. But then he loses
1: it with Tibble at the party, right? Yes, yeah. So that part like, yeah, where he's calm like,
0: down, relax. Yeah. And then he's like,
1: you better not shed your yeah. blood in this house. He's like, what know? did I
0: say? You're a fool. <laughs> and he's like, I just, there's something about that character that just speaks to me. I know it's such a small part, but I, I do really love both of those characters. Um, the parents anyway that's such a tangent from what we're talking about. oh about race <laughs> anyways but i i do wonder about like why so often juliet is the one that is when when not cast with two white actors mm-hmm. or two actors of the same ethnicity she is often cast as like the darker skinned one
1: yeah that's really interesting i think so much of the time in theater productions until very recently it was colorblind casting right so, <laughs> obviously, you know, which I hate, obviously. But I think and obviously the audience isn't always colorblind, which is one of the reasons why it's problematic yes. as a as a casting practice. But For
0: people who don't know, colorblind ca- casting just means they were doing this thing in the theater where anybody could be cast as any part, but everyone was treated as if they had no race. So it wasn't yes. like, "Oh, you'd cast a dark skinned black person and then that would become part of the conversation of the play no you would just cast a dark skinned black person and they'd be like she's so fair what beautiful yeah. white skin she has and you would just be like okay <laughs> or like in m- in midsummers they talk about like how fair helena was and how dark hermia was but helena mm-hmm. would be black and you just be like You're, we're just gonna go with it um yeah. And so, like, parents would have no, they would have no, they wouldn't look like their children in any way. It would just be like, there's an Asian dad, there's a Mexican son, like, figure it out.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, there are all sorts of problems that are generated from colorblind casting. And now more and more actors are finding it really, you know, they don't want to be cast in that way anymore. Uh, While other actors of color feel like, yeah, actually, I just want to play Hamlet. It doesn't really matter what how, how you cast me in terms of my race. Right. Um, so it's very subjective, but as a practice, it's, it's, it's not as ethical, um, as, as, as we used to think it was. So I think with Juliet, sometimes the, sometimes when I've seen her cast as a woman of color, it's largely been in a colorblind production. Mm. Um, and so they're not thinking about race necessarily, even though those dynamics come across in the production that, that I was referring to earlier, uh, directed by Ola Entz. He's a, a Black female director that directed at um, The Globe in, I think it was 2021. She cast two biracial actors um, who presented as Black, and they talked a lot about that casting decision, which was very, very deliberate, um, uh, but not to highlight race, but only because they wanted to be very conscious about, about race when they were um, thinking about the script and and also the performance. Um, So I don't, I don't necessarily, I do think that sometimes directors unconsciously fall into stereotyping. Mm -hmm. There's just no question, particularly around the Capulet role. Um, And the more conscious you are, the less likely you are to, to, to do that in ways that are offensive.
0: Yeah. Speaking of colorblind casting, Mm -hmm. the Baz Luhrmann movie famously casts a black actor as Mercutio. And now I literally cannot think of that part without a black actor. I'm like, oh, white people do this role? (laughs) Um, But I have to ask you, is there a homoerotic relationship between Romeo and Mercutio?
1: I think there's definitely queer energy in this play. Definitely.
0: Between the two Um, of
1: them. Between the two of them, for sure. Um, Mercutio feels very invested in Romeo and very, um, possessive as well. Um, and there is a sort of dynamic between them that, um, is actually really interesting and Mm -hmm. beautiful at times. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think there's a queer energy there. Um, and, you know, you think about, you know, definitions of of friendship in Shakespeare's time is queer it is male yeah. friendship was, it was very much, you know, we can be wholly connected on a neoplatonic level because there's no sexual tension between us. Mm. Um, you know, apparently, you know, right. you can have an equal relationship with a woman because she's not your equal, but two mm. men can have a much more meaningful, equal friendship and relationship uh, that's beyond any other kind of level that you can have with a woman because we're equals and that's the basis of friendship that if if there's a hierarchy there there's no true friendship and so that it develops a sort of a queerness to it that relationship and certainly would lean into that from time to time
0: yeah i mean I, i had never really thought about that previously, but as I was reading it this time, I was thinking in act two, scene four, Romeo and Mercutio sort of like share lines in the same way that he has just done with Juliet. And then later Tibble refers to them as consorting, which is sometimes like used to mean sex in these plays. So I was like, oh, I'd never, I'd never really, I had heard that like played at before, like in the version, the Baz Luhrmann version, the actor Harold Pippero, I don't know how to say his last name. He is sort of effeminate. And so I'd mm-hmm. seen it sort of played at in that way, but I'd never really paid attention to it, like how it shows up in the text itself. And this time it felt really clear to me because then you have his relationship with, with Benvolio that does not have that same rhythm or connection and they don't seem no. to have much deep conversation at all.
1: That feels more sibling-y, doesn't it? It does. Benvolio, I joke. Like their cousins or something.
0: I was thinking this time around reading it, ben- Benvolio. I think Benvolio is like such a waste. He's like such a narrator character to me. But <laughs> I was thinking of him this time as like, he is a reality TV producer's dream because he comes on and he's like, this is what's going on with our main character. Romeo has this thing going on. Like He knows what's going on, but he's so removed from it. He's like, if you watch The Bachelor, he's like the person who's definitely not winning, but loves to do the in the moment interviews and be like this person and this person and it was such drama and blah, also, blah blah blah. But
1: he's also trusted. He's the trusted one. Yes, right. He so, is. Yeah, everybody can go, okay, Benvolio says it, it's true. Yeah. And it, it's a bit like Horatio and Hamlet. Right. I wonder if it's played by the if it was played by the same actor originally. Oh interesting. Because that, that that part is so similar in that yeah. in terms of their relationship to the to the protagonist male.
0: Right. And like in the relationship then to us, the audience, like that we trust them too. Because I think like, yeah, that's actually really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I guess maybe I had a little bit because that's the person who for reality TV, that's the person who relates to you. They're setting the whole thing up. Um, And they're believable. They're believable. Right. And they're clearly, they're clearly liked by the other people around them because they have the information. Yes. Yes. Um, What about the Queen Mab speech? I know everybody Mm. loves it. It doesn't do a lot for me personally, but what is it about it? that Do you think that makes it such an important speech to audiences and like why, why that? I just feel like there's like such great speeches <laughs> in this play and like that's yeah. the one everybody loves and it's just sort of a list. Um, so I'm curious if you have insight to it.
1: I think it's because it's dense mm-hmm. with meaning and also so expansive in terms of meaning. Like what it means, for example, Baz Larman interpreted that as an acid trip. Right. Right. Basically. Uh, whereas it could be interpreted in lots of different ways, you know, and actually the way in which he talks about dreams and sleep, it, all of a mm-hmm. sudden you start identifying with it and the miniaturizing mm-hmm. uh, of, of that, of that figure, uh, which was something that, um, was really alive in Elizabethan literature at the time. You know this idea of a fairy queen, um, and 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 Shakespeare picks up on that in a few spate in a few places. Obviously, mm-hmm. Midsummer Night's Dream being the most obvious one. Right. But I think that I think so that that speech carries a lot of fantasy and wonder, um, and um, and it is rich poetry. You're mm-hmm. right. It's not the best poetry in the play. I agree <laughs> with you on that. And a lot of people cut it. In production, because it is quite expansive, but it's also really esoteric for some people, you know, they're just you're like, the audience isn't going to get this. Let's cut this. It doesn't make sense today. Uh So I see that speech actually cut quite harshly in a lot of yeah, cut down nowadays. pretty short. Yeah, yeah. But it is iconic. It's iconic. So you can't cut the whole thing.
0: Yeah. Because people will say, where's the Queen Mab speech? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You have to at least do like the first like eight lines and then kind of get it together. Speaking of cutting, Paris, in the end, in the tomb, (laughs) famously cut from the Baz Luhrmann version for reasons that I think make a ton of sense. Every time I read it, I forget that I got to do this whole moment with Romeo and Paris because I think of the movie so much. Mm. what do you think of the choice to cut Paris from the movie?
1: Um, So where is he? I haven't seen the movie for a while, oh, I confess. So in so the, buzz, so in the
0: play, in the play, yeah. after Juliet is fake dead, you know, they take her to the tomb. He's in the tomb. He's standing over her. Romeo comes. Yeah. And, he, you know, he's like, I think I hear Romeo. And Romeo's like, who's this guy? And then they fight and Romeo and Paris kills Paris. Killed. But in the movie... Juliet's laid out in the big church with all the candles Mm -hmm. and the flowers. just fucking breathtaking (laughs) imagery. And then Romeo like sneaks in and all the helicopters are outside. And it's just the two of them. There is no Paris in there. It's Mm -hmm. just the two of them. He is crying over her aggressively hard in his young Leonardo DiCaprio heartthrobby way. (laughs) And then he um, drinks his poison and then collapses as her little fingers are twitching and she wakes up right when he is dead. And then she like tries to kiss him and then she takes the gun and kills herself. Um, Yeah. yeah. But Paris just Paul Rudd. Sorry about it. You got to (laughs) go. Well, maybe no, but maybe they didn't, he didn't want it. Paul Rudd to get killed.
1: Nobody wants to see we, Paul Rudd being killed. Well,
0: that's true. But at the time we barely knew Paul Rudd. Yeah. We that's maybe true. had seen him in Clueless. He wasn't the Paul Rudd we know now. Though those are his Paul I Rudd's mean, two best roles, Clueless and Romeo I, and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> he peaked I mean, in the I 90s. Think, I think
1: the effect of that is Romeo's character, right? It has it has meaning for his character because it means that he's not racking up. He's not becoming a serial killer. In fact, right. just yesterday, my daughter said uh, Romeo and Hamlet are serial killers. She goes, Ooh, I don't I know it. why you love Shakespeare.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she's studying okay. acting, by the Some way. Some <laughs> of us love a serial killer. So that's why we like Shakespeare. Shakespeare is a serial killer. He kills everybody. I mean, in this play, he just tacks on Lady Montague. It's like, by the way, <laughs> yeah. she's dead. I she's like, dead. Who?
1: <laughs> yeah. That's I, I mean, uh, yeah, I think it changes how we view him. And um you know he kill killing paris he was an utterly innocent bystander in this whole sure. thing
0: yeah well but he also forces the issue he's also like partly to blame for the whole fallout if he had backed off and not tried to get married to someone the moment after her cousin dies or whatever maybe we have enough time to you know make it happen like he's a predator still <laughs> He wants he to marry a thirteen-year-old.
1: Pre- he yeah, well, I mean, for, by our standards, yes, that is sure. predatorial behavior. But I would say that if we don't, if we don't think about, like, we do, we know how old Paris is. He's, we know he's older, and he's we know property, he's older.
0: Yeah.
1: But I would say, and I'm not saying that I think he's the best character in the play, but I'm, no. I would say that I wouldn't. I never saw him as a predator, right? I saw him as like. I got to get a wife because I've got to, you know, I've got to do this thing that I've been told I have to do as an aristocrat living in this society in the 16th century. So I've got to keep pushing my boat in the direction that I've been told it needs to get pushed. And that's what he's doing. He's trying to get good. And he knows that she's she doesn't have any siblings. She has no older brothers. So he's like, I I I've gotta keep lock right. this one down, right? But
0: this is all predatory. He's after her for her money. She's a young girl. We know he's older. And also the scene when they meet at Friar Lauren's cell and he's like, Come on, let's do it. And she's like, Um, okay, I gotta pray or whatever. And he's like, Tell me you love me. And she's like, um, I love my husband. And she's, he's like, That's me. You love me. Like he's he's a little aggressive. <laughs> I feel like he's I feel like he gets a good edit in the minds of millennials like me because yeah. Paul Rudd played him. But I think yeah. in the text, he's slightly more of an
1: asshole. So you would like to have seen him get killed at the end of the Baz Luhrmann.
0: Well, no, I'm glad he's not in the scene because in the Baz Luhrmann, it's just so much better because, because yeah. if you get him killed, then Juliet and Romeo aren't like almost alive at the same moment.
1: Yes, Every time
0: yes. I see the Baz Luhrmann, I'm like, they were so close, but in the, te- in mm. the, in the play and in, you know, there's time in between. You have the whole part where the friar comes in and is like, let me get you to the nunnery girl. And she's like, no, I'm going to stay and kill myself. It's fine. No big deal. Um, (laughs) but I, I do think that pair, like, I think a lot of the characters in this play who aren't Romeo and Juliet get, uh, I believe the Shakespeare phrase is short shrift. Um, (laughs) like they're, they're, they don't get, to be like full characters in our imaginations because we're so focused on Romeo and Juliet. But I do think that there's like a version of Paris that's either sort of like a disgusting buffoon kind of guy, or maybe like a bit of a sleazy, you know, money hungry predator. And I think most of the time he ends up kind of just being a guy who delivers a few lines, but there's definitely like with the right actor, there's commentary on him too.
1: Yeah, but I think, as you say, those characters who are less rounded get, Shakespeare leaves that open. Yeah. And so you might see a different lady. Like, yeah. I don't, I, I don't love Lady Capulet,
0: mm. for example. Why not?
1: She, well, because she's a horrible mother. Yes. She's a horrible mother. But this and is why and, I know, love
0: her. Like, I love her, like, as, like, like for an actor. Like, I think she's a great part to play.
1: Yeah. So yeah. that is a good part. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. But I, I find her, there's some female characters in Shakespeare and uh, and male characters that are conventionally loved mm-hmm. that I think, I don't love this person. Mm. Why is everybody, why does everybody love Portia in Merchant of Venice? Ooh. She's, Shakespeare's Karen. I don't understand it. She is. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: And so, but we seem to think she's so great because she gives a good speech about mercy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't love Lady Capulet because I think that her, that's my reading of her because yeah as a mother of a teenage girl, I'm like, what are you doing, lady? Yeah. Right. So, but she's not, she doesn't have enough dimensionality. Right. Uh, for, for anything else but my imagination, I think. Yeah. And I think that's true for Paris as well. But I hear what you're saying. I I, I think if you think about it from that perspective, then yeah, maybe if you do draw a line from the beginning of his moment to the end that there is like an aggressiveness there for sure.
0: Yeah. And like the way that he's like, you know, prostrate over her, my own stage direction, not Shakespeare's, Um, (laughs) but like saying how much he loved her at this, at the end where it's like, we've seen none of this. Like there's some sort of performance (laughs) to him. And you know who else we didn't talk about at all, who I'm sort of lukewarm on, but a lot of people also love is the nurse. We haven't talked about her.
1: What What do you make of the nurse? I think for me, it always depends on who plays it. So the yeah. nurse in the text itself, yeah, fine. Yeah, you know, the, I understand that character. I understand the function she had in Juliet's life, that she was the soft place to fall that Juliet mm-hmm. had growing up mm-hmm. because her mother certainly didn't fill that role. Um, and so there is a kind of um, interconnection and interdependence between her and Juliet that at times seems unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. that's
0: a very that gentle way relation- to put it
1: yeah but I mean that was the weirdly I'm always coming at it as a historian as well but that was the weird relationship that you know aristocratic girls had with their nurses or the gentlewomen who were attending on them that were that knew their most intimate secrets and had their most you know dress them and bathe them and did everything with them um, and so there's a kind of truth and repository that she is, uh, for Juliet's, uh, entire being in some ways. So yeah, that can be seen from a modern perspective as a hundred percent unhealthy, yeah. but depending on who plays her, I've seen mm-hmm. her played in a way that's made me wretch uh, at, at the nurse, um, and her, um, overbearing interventional, yeah. um, behavior, her, the confusion that she causes when she seems to be really supportive of Julia. And then all of a sudden says, just do what your parents tell you to do. But you do get that insight into how she has been treated and how she might be treated by the house, by the father. And so that will have an impact um, on how, on her behavior. But I do. uh, Yeah. For me, so much of it is about how um, actors get inside those, those characters.
0: Yeah. I think that's true, especially with this play because so many of us know it so well. And yeah. we've been taught it and we've seen it, that it's like, it's hard. It's hard to sometimes imagine people performing it in a way that isn't a way that you've seen it or thought of it in your own brain. But I'm lukewarm on the nurse, but also I could be swayed by a great performance.
1: A great performance. But what do you like? What was when you first were taught this play? What were you taught about the nurse? Because I know that I've, I've had anything. teachers. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I had teachers who just kind of said, "This is what the these are what the words mean." Yeah, here's a dictionary. Here's a quiz. Take a quiz, and nobody's really give giving out. You know, this is how you should read the nurse. Actually, this is this is a villain. This is a hero. This is. Um, right. I wasn't taught that.
0: Yeah, I was never taught either. to really make sense of her, what to do with her. Yeah. I think probably more so than any of the other characters in the play. I think, yeah. like in the way that it was taught, I think the all the boyfriends, Romeo and all his boy, guy friends, was definitely taught, like because those mm. early scenes, I feel like those early scenes that like play on the feud, like the first street fight and whatever, that yes. those scenes got a lot of attention, because and I feel
1: like they're dangerous. They're, yeah, that's, it, the play opens with danger,
0: right, right. I but think I feel like really in the important. scope of the actual plot of the story. Yeah. you sort of get that information almost from the prologue, right? Like we know yeah. they hate each other. There's blood in the streets. <laughs> Things are bad. But we spend so much time <laughs> on that part of the feud when really like the only other time the feud comes up is like with Tibble and Capulet and Capulet's like, whatever, it's fine, you guys. And I sort of wonder, like, again, to the idea of like adults behaving badly, I sort of wonder if Capulet and Montague could have just probably squashed it at this point. They're both old. Like they're in their fifties or sixties. Like I feel like the kids the, took the mantle the whole, of it.
1: Yeah. But I think that's the whole point about the legacy of feud. Right. No, hate. I agree. Right. I think it's the point yeah. of it.
0: I guess I'm, what I'm saying is like in an alternate universe, it sort of feels mm-hmm. like there's a world where they could just be like, Oh, our kids really like each other. Like, let's just be cool and oh, yeah. move on because they clearly they don't actually, at <laughs> yeah. Like they actually don't really care anymore. Like they're like, we're old men we don't really care, but the whole mantle of the fighting has been passed to the next generation. And I think like, but again, that is to that idea of like adults behaving badly. If they had been Mm. better adults and had said like, you know what, we got to squash this. Like people are dying. This is silly in that first scene with the prince. If they had agreed to just be cool, like, you know, there is no play, but also that's a lesson too on you know, who's in charge here? I think that's like the big question of the play for me sometimes is like who's pulling the strings? Like, who's setting all of this in motion? It's really the adults around the kids. It's not the kids. Um, their yeah. I- their idea is like, we love each other, and then Friar Lawrence is like, get married, it'll fix it. And they're like, Okay, mm-hmm. great. And then the dad's like, No, you gotta get married to this person. And then he's like, Well, take this fake point. Like, it's like the adults are yeah. constantly moving them around and they're sort of just like, We wanna make out and like do poems at each other.
1: <laughs> I think it's I th- well I have a couple thoughts about what you just said. So I think I think that uh going back to the idea of um the early scene and the fights yeah on the street. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. I think that content is really important. I think it sets things up that creates a dangerous context mm-hmm. for an incredibly um volatile yeah. love.
0: Yeah. And I
1: think that tension that you talked about earlier yeah. is part of that volatility. It, yeah. it fuels that volatility. I agree. Um, and without that, the play just doesn't have pace. It doesn't have energy. And you You're right. need to have that. Did you yeah. bite your thumb at me? Yeah. You know, you've, you've got to have that sort of in-your-face kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and that's the bit that a lot of, you know, the productions that kind of look at um, street crime and that try to get kids sort of thinking about the dangers of Of knife crime or gun gun violence, et cetera, Uh, that's a really great space for for those kinds of explorations Mm -hmm. as well. Um, But then you were talking about what was the oh about point about adults like pulling the strings? Yeah, and I think they absolutely are. They are absolutely pulling the strings, and I think that's what's under the microscope in the play is the methodology. As I was saying earlier. Um, what is your relationship to your children? In mm-hmm. Shakespeare's time, it was about it was punitive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember doing research on um on an adolescence in the sixteenth century. Was there such a thing as adolescence? And they didn't identify it as a particular time, but there mm. are there's lots of sort of commentary at the time about how there's a stage where, you know, young people where kids become, are becoming adults. And they go through uh, this sort of recalcitrant phase or um, stubborn phase. And that kind of language is used a lot to describe them. I also discovered that teenage suicide was pretty common in 16th century England. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of fear, like being afraid of your parents was a very Mm. common thing, like absolute terror, right? (sighs) One boy a story I read about one boy actually killed himself. He jumped into the river and drowned because he'd stolen something and he uh, didn't want his parent, his father to find out. Hmm. So he killed himself because he'd rather kill himself than face the wrath of his father. Um, So it was one of those societies in which you were constantly being punished and violence was part of that punishment.
0: Mm, That's so interesting. Mm. Okay, we're sort of out of time. I do want to ask you, normally we talk about the title and the cover, but because there's so many covers and so many (laughs) versions of this play and the title feels, it nails it, I think it's spot on. Um, I want to ask you just to gush a little bit about this play. Do you have a favorite scene, character, speech, anything like that, like that for you really is like the best of this play?
1: Oh God! yes, I think it's when he first sees her. I mean, it's such a cliche. I'm such a cliche, but it's <laughs> only because of the Zeffirelli film mm. and that moment when he sees her and I guess the Lerman film does it too just the beauty mm-hmm. and the it just captures me because I'm a romantic and I believe so very deeply in that kind of love yeah. um and I've experienced I experienced in my relationship that I'm in now, love at first sight. Mm. Like absolutely saw him. And I just knew I was going to marry that man. Mm. And I just, you know, I didn't think it was something that was real, but Romeo and Juliet capture that for me in that moment when they first see each other. It's so beautiful. And it is something that, you know, if I, if I watch that Zeffirelli film, it makes me weep when I Mm. see it because it's so, it's something we all well, I can't say everybody wants it, but I always wanted it when I was a young girl. Um, yeah. yeah, I love cliche. That. Yeah, but it's okay.
0: <laughs> I'm a cliche of myself, and I love violence and death and sad things.
1: So, wh- but what is your moment? What so, is your I do moment?
0: love the balcony scene. I do. Yeah. I really love the balcony scene, and I always thought that my favorite part of the play was the gallop a pace speech that Juliet delivers before Mm. she it's before she finds out that Romeo's banished and then in that scene she finds out and then the speech at the end is the banished speech that she does and this time around the banished speech I read it like five times I thought it was phenomenal and it had never really triggered anything in me previously Mm. but this time around there was something about the balance of the banished speech and the Gallop-A-Pace speech, like the bookends of this scene that just yeah. really – I mean, I just think she's such a great character. I think she's one of Shakespeare's best women, cha- woman characters. I think that – She is. She I, is. Yeah. She just has so many great speeches. She's so smart. She's so, like, analytical. She's weighing her options. She's always asking, like, the right questions of people. She's – like, I just – I. And, and love her, her. her,
1: when I was writing my book, uh, you know, I wrote about her that speech on her ode to night, mm-hmm. and actually that speech is phenomenal. And I, I feel like every time I read this play, I rediscover something. That you just really made me think about that, um, and yeah. in terms of like right now, this speech means this to me. Yeah. But I really, you, you talking about how amazing Juliet is. Um, I wanted to recommend a book, which I'm you yeah. may be aware of, which is Sophie Duncan's book called Searching for Juliet. I don't know it. It just came out this year. Okay. It's um if you love Juliet, you'll love this book okay. because she talks about the way Juliet has been sort of romanticized and how creepy it's been and mm. productions and movies. Um, Sophie's a kind of um Rolodex of all the productions and film versions. Okay. Um so she that it's a really, really great um, uh, piece in, in, to read alongside this play.
0: Okay. I love it. Wait, I have one last quick question. Then we'll be done. Does this entire play take place in a week? (laughs) Less than less than right. It's like a, it's like a Saturday to a Thursday.
1: It's it's, um, I think it's just two and a half days. It's not even that much. I might have that wrong. I need to go back, but I I think what you get.
0: Yeah. Well I think Sorry, go ahead. I, I think it's Saturday they meet, Sunday they get married. Sunday night everyone's killed. Monday yeah. cuz the dads like, "Well, what's the day after whatever?" and they're like, "Wednesday." And they're like, "Okay, well, let's do Thursday." But then they bump it back up to Wednesday. Yes. So right. I the only place I was unclear was whether when Romeo actually makes it to the tomb is it later on Wednesday or is it moved over to Thursday.
1: But it's it could be the wee hours of Thursday. Yeah. But it's but it's just literally a few days and nobody sleeps. No.
0: <laughs> nobody sleeps. Well, will Romeo and Juliet fall asleep for a moment so that they can wake up to say is it the nightingale or the lark? But yeah. other than that, <laughs> everyone's up all night. <laughs> um Farah, this was so awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm just so happy we have to do Shakespeare more on this show because I this is such a joy for me. Thank you. Next one, Titus. Next one, Titus. Oh, I'd Thank love to so do much. Titus. I think Titus was on my list. Definitely come back and do Titus. I love, love. We'll do the opposite of romance. We'll do the violent one, <laughs> the destruction one. Um, everyone, you can get Farah's book, The Great White Bard, wherever you get your books. I'm sure you can also get a copy of Romeo and Juliet there if you've never read it. Um Thank you so much, Farah, and everyone else. We will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all. That does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Another year of the stacks episode is in the books. Thank you to Farah Cream Cooper for returning to the show. And thank you again to Julia Ricard for helping to make this conversation possible. And now it is time for our big announcement. Our first book club pick for the year 2024 is going to be the novel Erasure by Percival Everett. You might be familiar with Percival Everett because we did one of his books, The Trees, a few years back. And this one, Erasure, is a satirical take on race in the publishing world. It also was just turned into the movie American Fiction, written and directed by Cord Jefferson. We're going to discuss the book on January 31st, and you have to listen on January 3rd to find out who our guest will be for that episode. If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash thestacks and join the Stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media, at thestackspod on Instagram, threads, and TikTok, and at thestackspod underscore on Twitter. And you can, of course, check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Today's episode of the Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Look around; you can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait, Auto
1: Trader.